0: Reverend John Maidendorf, and the grandson of Reverend John Maidendorf, and now also the father of Reverend John Maidendorf. It is a happy occasion for us to be here to worship with you this morning. The occasion of my sons and our brothers and our grandsons and nephews Our family as a whole is grateful to you as a congregation for, first of all, recognizing the gifts of God in John, and secondly, embracing him and supporting him with your love and with your prayers. Um, I wish I could promise you a perfect pastor, but I don't think you call the perfect pastor. I think you perfect your pastor through prayer. And so, as I heard the vows this morning, I was encouraged that you as a congregation have chosen to commit yourselves to him as much as he has committed himself to you. Will you pray with me as we approach God's word? Father in heaven, we come to you in this morning on this special occasion and we lift up our hearts in celebration and joy to you. It is such a joy, Lord God, to be part of your people and to see once again that from generation to generation you are faithful. We give you glory and praise and we ask that as we open your word and as we meditate on the words that you have given us through Jesus Christ that our hearts will be opened, that our minds will be clarified and that you will speak directly to us in a way that allows us to carry this word forward into the world. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. I'm going to ask you to join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm only going to read one verse, but you might want to keep your Bibles open in order to get a sense of context of what this passage is about. Jesus is speaking with uh, Nicodemus here in this passage. He's explaining to Nicodemus the core of the Gospel, a Gospel that Nicodemus at this point had not yet grasped but as we find later in the Gospel of John he did indeed understand and he became himself a figure in the early church according to church tradition. But at this point Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus his ministry. Nicodemus has called him as one hoping to understand who Jesus is and where he stands in the vast array of the many parties and factions that were vying for control of the direction of the people, of the faith of the people of Israel at this time in history. But Jesus sets himself apart from those other factions and he says these words in John chapter three, verse 16. And if you want to follow along, it's on page 1650. This is what Jesus says to Nicodemus to sum up his ministry. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word people of God at Community Christian Reformed Church, friends, I call you friends, family, and of course, Son John. Let me begin by thanking you for this invitation to bring to you the Word of God today on what for me and for John's mother and his siblings is a very special occasion. We are honored and overjoyed to be present at John's ordination. And today, as I bring this ordination message to and for my son, I invite you as a congregation to listen along. This is going to be a conversation between John and I, and not really much of a conversation because I'm going to do the talking, and <laughs> of course, he's going to do the listening. <laughs> but those roles will soon be reversed, John, so you'll have an opportunity to, to talk back at some point from this pulpit. <laughs> Adlai Stevenson, who was the ambassador to the Soviet Union during the era of John F. Kennedy, always would start his speeches by saying, it's my job to talk, and it's your job to listen, and if you should finish before I do, feel free to leave. <laughs> I'm not going to make that offer this morning. <laughs> but I'll try to be concise in my comments. We are blessed today because, once again, Our God has shown himself faithful in the ordination of John as minister of the word and sacraments. And these words are addressed to John, but of course they are addressed to the people of God as well because this message stands at the center of what is the ministry of Jesus Christ and subsequently the ministry of his church. My dear son John, 94 years ago, a young man named John Maidendorp accompanied by his wife, Wilhelmina, stood before the congregation at Dutton, Michigan, and was ordained into the ministry of the Christian Reformed Church. Since then, continuously until today, there has been a John Maidendorp in the ministry, and given the circumstances of this day, it looks like God will grant us the grace to reach a century of ministry in this church. Needless to say, this is an act of extreme mercy on God's part, Usually, evolutions take one of two paths. Either they follow the path of continuous improvement or the path of continuous dilution. (laughs) In this case, I think I can speak on behalf of your grandfather and your great-grandfather. I think that God has finally perfected the model. (laughs) It is clear that you possess great gifts for ministry. You have a clear mind, a compassionate heart, and a love for the church of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, God has given you the gift to expound his word, something to which I can attest and which not only I, but many others affirm. You have the gift of preaching, and I am confident that God will use you for great things. As the fourth generation of pastors of God's flock, you stand to inherit a great legacy, And I am not just talking about the thousands of books that we have forced upon you. (laughs) In this message today, I hope to bequeath to you the wisdom of those generations, a wisdom that was won through many years of hard fought sacrifices and also great joys as we ministered to the people of God. It's a wisdom that I too have inherited from my ancestors. They made sacrifices, personal, financial, and social, in order to serve the cause of Christ. And especially for your mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, they did so in a church that was not always welcoming of their gifts, and that received their gifts nonetheless, as they labored often in obscurity and sometimes in anonymity. But the church depended on these gifts, all of them. And for they all, women and men, they are to be honored. As servants of God what I share with you today is nothing novel this passage is well known and perhaps well worn but from it derives the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ which we preach and it is simply this for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life I don't want to complicate the gospel for you because it is simple in its essence. And it's a message that we preach repeatedly and with simplicity to a world that very much desires and longs to hear this message. But sometimes is unable to or for whom the message has become clouded with other things that interfere in its simplicity and directness. We know that this text epitomizes the essence of ministry and I hope that as you enter the ministry of God, it becomes the motivation and in a certain sense, the motor for your ministry in the future as well. First of all, I want to look at God's love, the source of all ministry. John, the source of all ministry is, in fact, God's love. There are many approaches to ministry and I'm sure you will have reason to use them all. There are moments of judgment, there are moments of affirmation, there are moments of kindness, there are moments of compassion, there are moments of forgiveness, but all of them, all of them derive from this love of God. 1 John 4 verses 7 and 8 instructs us to love one another, for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. A more straightforward definition of the identity of the believer and of the ministry of the church there could not be. Yet love is an oft-used and oft-abused word in the English lexicon. We say that we love things glibly, flippantly. But God uses the word love neither glibly nor flippantly, but he uses it in a deadly serious fashion because, if I may put it that way, it cost him the life of his own begotten son. Most biblical scholars agree with Raymond Brown, once the authoritative commentator on the Gospel of John and one who influenced an entire generation of New Testament commentators, that John's use of the Greek word agape in this passage, agape is a term that you've probably heard before, that John uses it here to denote... The Old Testament concept of chesed or covenant love. We have trouble translating this noun in English because it's hard to capture exactly the essence of what chesed means. So you find alternately translations like mercy, like love, loving kindness, everlasting love, steadfast love, just to name a few of the more familiar renderings of this Old Testament word. We have trouble capturing the nuances in English because these nuances are bound up in ancient customs and rituals, among them being the suzerain treaties of the Old Testament. Meredith Klein of Westminster University was or Westminster Seminary was the first one to point out that the Ten Commandments follows the form of a suzerain treaty, and suzerain treaties were such that when a sovereign conquered a country he would impose on that country his code of conduct. He would say to the country, in effect, you are now my subjects, I am your sovereign, and these are the things that you must do in order to live peaceably in my realm. And so when God addresses the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me, God is using a form that is familiar to the people of the ancient Middle East, but with one exception. He says that he will show loving kindness to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. That word loving kindness in the Hebrew text is the word chesed in Hebrew, and it refers to that covenant love and what distinguishes God from the tyranny of the suzerains of the ancient Middle East, is that God says to his people, I bind myself to you as my people and you are now bound to me as your God. But that bond is not one of power and it's not one of violence, but rather it is one of love. Chesed, love. Covenant, love. A love that holds on and doesn't let go. That tenacious love of the hound of heaven that clings to his believers and draws them to himself and says, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will walk with you in darkness and in light. I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's interesting that in that same verse it says that he shows his loving kindness, his covenant love to thousands of those who love him. But it uses a different verb there. It uses the verb ahab in Hebrew. And the verb Abhab in Hebrew is is a reference to our daily affections, the kind of affections that we show in our family relationships, in our friendships. It's the kind of relationships that we have on a daily basis as human beings but it reveals both the difference between God's love and our human affections and also the durability of those bonds. Because our human affections are limited Our human affections are often fragile, frail, and weak. What God says to us is, My love for you is not like your human love. It transcends those human limitations because I, as your God, am binding myself to you eternally. We capture this concept in the New Testament using the words election. God chooses us in Jesus Christ for reasons that are beyond anything that we can fathom. He comes to us and he reveals himself to us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't as though we achieved our salvation. It wasn't as though we were able to somehow earn it by our actions or by our response to him. But God, out of his chesed love, has bound himself to us. And so, God says to us, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49 verse 15. And there on the palms of Jesus is the engraving of all of our names, the signs of that hesed love as borne out on the cross of Jesus Christ. John, today as we speak, there are some here quietly listening, some here who are quietly struggling in their faith, who are saying, God has forgotten me, or perhaps even more, they're saying God does not exist. Their quiet struggle has brought in some cases fear, in some cases despair, and in some cases perhaps anger. You will see all of these in the course of your ministry, because people will treat you as the face of God. If they are happy in their relationship with God, they will express to you joy and happiness. If they feel abandoned by God, they will express to you fear. When they feel unloved, they'll express despair. And when they feel betrayal, they will express anger. Soon enough, they will begin to approach you in your office or in quiet moments when they can get you apart from the crowd and will confess to you what is in their hearts and minds. And at that moment, you must not take whatever they're saying personally, whether it be words of praise or words of scorn, but rather you must be to them the chesed face of God. You must be the covenant love of God to the people of God. Because if your ministry is based on ahav love, if it's based on human affection, then ministries cannot endure. But if your ministry is based on the chesed love of God through Jesus Christ, that stigmata love, that unwavering, unflinching, unalterable love of God toward his people that is the foundation of all true ministry, then your ministry will endure. And its fruits will be evident. In my work overseeing international projects for Michigan State University, I've had all the privileges of meeting people all over the world. Believers, profound believers in Jesus Christ, who are working out their vocations under the call of God in all walks. Among them was the dean of the College of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Rwanda. As we all know, Rwanda is a genocide-scarred nation with many open wounds still waiting to be healed. And working in this context is taxing and sometimes quite tricky because, as you can imagine, those hostilities don't just disappear. It's been 20 years since genocide, but they're still just below the surface and there's still much healing that needs to take place. Working quietly in this shadow of genocide is Dr. Phil Cotton, Phil gave up his lucrative academic career in his native Scotland in order to serve the people of Rwanda. We recently have been conducting a series of leadership development workshops with the upper management of the university and of course needed to deal with the issue of conflict resolution because it is so important in this context to be able to look toward a unified future rather than a divided past. And so in an open forum where the leaders of the university took turns sharing their approaches to conflict, and where each one delicately tiptoed around the issue of conflict that conjures so quickly some vivid images of very personally lived trauma, Phil sat quietly through most of the discussion. Near the end, Phil stood up and said, My sisters, my brothers, it is the love of Christ that constrains me. And for that reason, my approach to conflict is simple. To every person who enters my office, I say in my mind, I love you. And to the especially difficult ones, I just say it faster. <laughs> this is the Hesed love of God in Christ. John, this is the source of all ministry. Don't rely on hew ahab for your ministry. Draw freely, abundantly, from the infinite well of God's chesed love in Jesus Christ. And you will be God, to God's people, the chesed face of God. Secondly, there's the method of ministry that's revealed in this passage, and it is God's sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. If God's love is the source of ministry, the sending of His Son is the method, something that He in the Gospel of John, emphasizes repeatedly is that God has sent his Son. The verb pimpo in Greek is used repeatedly to describe the mission of Jesus. In fact, the word mission or missio in Latin is simply a derivative of the Greek verb pimpo, which means to send. Missiologists, of course, have made much of this fact. The Church of Jesus Christ is... The apostolic church, we confess that when we say the Nicene Creed, it is the apostolic church and the Greek word for apostle also means sent because the church of Jesus Christ above all, as was Jesus Christ, is a sent church. Apostles are the sent ones in God's vocabulary. They are the couriers of grace running to a fallen world to proclaim God's chesed love. And the Church of Jesus Christ, by its very nature and definition, is a sent church. As Jesus Christ crossed the divide between the divine and the human, so also we, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, as members of his body, become those who are sent to the world. In my experience, churches tend to choose one of two postures over against the world in what appears to be an increasingly hostile world, Either they choose a world-escaping posture where they try to build a parallel universe, a parallel reality where they simply separate themselves from the world and create parallel institutions and parallel activities and become, in effect, an entity unto themselves. Or they choose a world-affirming approach that says the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the world. It's for that world out there and they choose to become a world transforming force. As you probably know, the Christian Reformed Church has decided to choose the latter approach when it published, Our World Belongs to God. It's our contemporary testimony to the world in which we say, you are the object of God's mercy, you are the object of God's compassion, you are the object of God's mission. Jesus sums up his ministry in this way, in John 20, verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. I send you to the world. And he warns us that we're being sent as sheep among wolves, as prey to the predator into a hostile world. And he promises that we will be hated even as he was hated, and yet he sends us. Because the very nature of the church of Jesus Christ is a sent church. We often end up trying to reduce this sending to a couple of missionaries here and there around the world. And uh, don't get me wrong, I, I fully support missionaries. I was one myself for a long time and we depend on the gifts of God's people and their prayerful support in order to do our work. Nevertheless, the sending of the church is not for a particular group nor is it isolated to particular activities. In fact, every believer in Jesus Christ is sent with the gospel into the world. And whether I deliver coffee at Tim Hortons or deliver eloquent sermons from a Sunday pulpit, either way, I am called by God as a member of the body of Jesus Christ called the church to cross that divide to the world. It is not that we are silent about our relationship with God, but rather our relationship with God becomes the message of our lives. It's lived out before the chesed love of God in the midst of the world. One of my favorite quotes, and uh, I'll just isolate this quote because I don't know much about him. His name is Erwin McManus. he's the pastor of of the Mosaic Church in Los Angeles, or he was at one time at least. So many of these guys fall into disgrace after years that I'm not sure I dare quote him after a while, but um, at the time at least he was still a pastor in, uh, in in fully honored as a pastor to the Mosaic Church, and he said this he said. Jesus Christ told us to be in the world but not of the world, but we have chosen as the church of God to be of the world but not in the world. And what he meant by that is God has asked us to be that light and that salt that we heard about in the form that was read this morning, that light and salt to the world. And yet we have abdicated that task and instead of doing that, we've separated ourselves out into separate institutions and separate activities And we don't really mingle much with the world. In fact, there are some believers who don't even know unbelievers. They don't know a single unbeliever. And that's astonishing to me because we are asked to be in the world but not of the world. But instead what we've done is we separated ourselves and we basically adopted the world's values. We just do it in different settings. That was the point that Erwin McManus was making But I think we distort the gospel when we do that and we avoid the very important sending of the church to the world. We are an apostolic church. And as you carry out your ministry, John, you have to remember that this church is sent. These, the people of God, whether the cashier at Tim Hortons or the astrophysicist or the farmer, regardless of the calling that they have received from God in Christ, they become couriers of grace, couriers of chesed to the world of which they are a part. And your calling as the pastor of this flock is to equip the saints for that ministry to the world. There's a very famous book written by Rodney Starks entitled The Rise of Christianity in which he documented how the Christian movement rose spectacularly. From just those very few disciples to, within 400 years, actually toppling the Roman Empire and suddenly becoming owners of that Roman Empire, if you could regard Constantine a Christian at least. Within 400 years, Christianity had overturned the world's most powerful empire. And what Rodney Stark's documents is that it was not necessarily their words that changed the ancient world as it was their actions. When you read the ancient literature that talks about Christians, what it points out is it was their conduct that changed the Roman world. Because whereas Romans and their pagan counterparts would walk away from conflict and trouble, Christians would walk into it. They were the ones who rescued the infants who were exposed on the banks of the Tiber and raised them as their own children. They were the ones who cared for the sick in the midst of plagues while others fled. They were the ones who shared their bread with the hungry. And in Christian communities, it was clear that there was no hierarchy. Slaves and patricians met together and broke bread together before the face of God. And this chesed love became evident in the way that they lived and loved in their daily lives. And this is what God calls us to do today as the church of Jesus Christ. We are called to be the chesed love of God to the world. John, your job as minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to prepare the church for this sending. You work to equip the saints of God to be his chesed love in a fallen world. And finally we see the object of God's mission here which is the world. The surprising thing about this verse is that God so loved the world. In our minds when we hear the word world in this verse we immediately think of perhaps the people in the world or maybe if we have an expansive mind we might think of the creation that God loved his creation. But the surprising thing here is that the word for world as it is used in the Gospel of John, refers to an ordered universe that is in rebellion against its creator. The world in the Gospel of John is a hostile entity. It's not a friendly entity. It's not a benign entity. It's one that is opposed to the work of God and that finally takes his son Jesus Christ to the cross. And yet it is precisely to this world that we are called as the people of God, To a fallen, hostile creation that has rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and God. But it is precisely this world that God confesses his love for. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John, it is true that ministry is also always crossing that divide. It is always reaching across the chaos and into the abyss of our fallen world to invite those in darkness to meet their loving creator. If Chesed is the source of ministry and Pempo is the method, then this cosmos, this fallen world, is our goal as the Church of Jesus Christ. In 2004, together, I suppose, with the rest of the world, I read Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. Anyone read that book? Yeah, it's a good book. Well commercialized, I might add. I'm going to write one myself someday and become independently wealthy. The book was uplifting, a perfect introduction to the Christian life, and I don't have anything bad to say about it, but as I completed the last chapter, I felt maybe somewhat uneasy because the book ends with a chapter on finding your ministry in the church, which was fine. Of course, as a churchman, how could I argue with the need to get involved in your local church? Everyone should be involved in their local church. It's an important ministry and we should all be part of it. Nevertheless, after weeks of reflection, trying to understand my discomfort i realized why i felt the book was incomplete the purpose driven life seems to conclude that the goal of the christian life is to find your ministry in the church through which to share your gifts but the scriptures do not point to the church as the goal of our ministry the scriptures point to the world for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son god did not give his son for the church well Let me rephrase that. God did give his son for the church, but the church becomes the body of Christ. We become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this fallen world. Orlando Costas, a renowned missiologist from Costa Rica, once said that the church of Jesus Christ is the only institution whose center of balance is outside of itself. Think about that for a minute. We are the only institution whose center of balance is outside of ourselves. In other words, we cannot find our balance as a church unless we understand that our mission is to the world. God calls us to the world. We have, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, a mission of reconciliation to the world. We plead with people, be reconciled with God So John, as you minister to the church of Jesus Christ, keep your eyes on the horizon. It's easy to get lost inside of our Christian world. It is comfortable as well, but our mission is not the church. The church is the vehicle of our mission. Our mission is the world. Only when we live into this ministry to the world will we find balance as the church of Jesus Christ. And this call to the world is as expansive as your imagination can handle. Consider the lofty vision of Romans chapter 8, for example, where in one of my favorite biblical passages in Romans 8 verse 21, Paul assures us that the entire creation, not just people, that the entire creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Imagine that for a moment, our call is to the entire creation. This sanctifies every walk of life. It sanctifies every vocation. It sanctifies every occupation. As we administer God's creation on a daily basis, whether as that cashier at Tim Hortons or as the aerospace engineer, we are working out the chesed love of God to deliver the creation from the bondage of corruption. Or as Abraham Kuyper declared in the Stone Lectures at Princeton University, There is not one square inch in this entire creation over which our sovereign God does not declare mine. Your task as minister of the gospel, should you choose to accept it, is to prepare the saints of God for ministry in the church, but also in the world. The world that God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. John, as you enter ministry in the name of Jesus Christ, we are all praying for you. We are praying that you will understand how wide and long and high and deep the chesed love of God in Christ is and that as you equip the saints to bring that message to the world, you will be a blessing and you will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but poured yourself out, taking the form of a servant. As John takes the form of a servant in your flock, I pray that you will bless him with the mind of Christ, that he will be filled with your Holy Spirit, and that you will use him to empower your flock to be light and salt in the world. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.